Welcome to Powwow Live Podcast from powwows.com, connecting you with native culture since 1996. Here's your host, Paul Gowder. Welcome to the Powwow Live Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Gowder. This is the podcast from powwows.com, your place to learn, explore, and connect with all things Native American culture. Welcome. It's so excited for you to be here. And today's episode is really important. So I'm glad you have tuned in today. If you're new, please subscribe to the podcast. You can go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, any of the podcast players and subscribe. That way you'll get all of our upcoming episodes sent to you automatically. And you won't want to miss some of the great ones we got coming up. But today is really special. I have Rebecca Nagel, who is actually the host of her own podcast called This Land. Rebecca has been following the Supreme Court for several years, especially when it comes to how it affects Native American law, policy, and tribal sovereignty. Her podcast is actually about following two of those court cases. And today we're going to talk about some of the recent Supreme Court decisions such as Roe versus Wade and some upcoming cases and how that's going to impact tribal sovereignty. This is going to have a dramatic impact on tribal sovereignty, policy, law, and all of that going forward. It has huge potential to fundamentally change some of the ways that the United States has a relationship with Native American tribes and what enrolled tribal members are able to do and what life is like for them. So listen to today's episode. It's really important that we discuss these things and know what's going on. I want to say a special shout out to our Patreons. Those are the folks over on powwownation.com that are making a contribution, helping support powwows.com each month. We really thank them for their support. We love our Patreon community. And if you're interested in joining that community and being part of that group that helps support this podcast and all the other things we do at powwows.com, please head on over to powwownation.com. I'd love to see you in there. We're doing some cool things on our Patreon community, monthly Zoom calls, and they get special giveaways and other things. So go check it out, powwownation.com. Stay tuned at the end of the episode, and I'll have a trivia question this week, and you can enter to win a powwows.com shirt. Don't forget to... During the month of August, we have a special giveaway going on. We're giving away an eighth generation blanket. You can enter to win daily for even more chances. Head over to powwows.com slash win. And just one more announcement before we get to today's interview. If you're new to powwows or looking to find one near you, we've got you covered with two great resources. First, head over to powwows.com slash powwows near me, all one word, um, lowercase, and that will get you on an email list and we will send you lists of powwows twice a month, all the new listings on the calendar. And we're literally listing dozens of powwows for the summer and fall season. So check that out. And for those of you new to powwows or want to go to your first powwow, head over to powwows.com slash powwow 101. And we'll send you several emails explaining to you what a powwow is, what the dancing and singing is all about, the etiquette and what to expect at your first powwow. All right, everybody. Today's episode, like I said, is an interview with Rebecca Nagel from This Land Podcast, where we discuss the important issues with the Supreme Court and how that's going to impact tribal sovereignty, tribal law, and policies going forward. Please listen to the the interview today and share it with your friends. Again, like I said, this is extremely important, and we need to 
raise awareness of these issues and and be prepared for what is coming. All right, everybody, thanks so much for listening. Rebecca Nagel from This Land Podcast. So with recent court changes and, and decisions like what just happened with Roe v. Wade, I know that there's a lot of issues right now swirling around tribal legal issues. And as soon as I saw the some of the things, responses to Roe v. Wade dealing with tribes, I was like, Hi, there's no way I'm going to get a handle on this. I've got to go to the person I know who's keeping a kind of finger on the pulse of this. So thanks again for spending some time with us here on, um, on powwows.com. It's been crazy, right? Yeah, yeah. It's been a crazy season at the Supreme Court, and I, um, I don't think the the big decisions are over. <laughs> I think we'll see a lot next term too. Yeah, and that's 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 what I wanted to talk about is kind of what where are we going? But before we get there, um, if anybody hasn't listened to your your podcast, I hope they will go and check out the two seasons. Um, so let's catch up. The first season of your podcast dealt with um the uh. uh a criminal trial um, that kind of had some impact there on, on Oklahoma tribal sovereignty. Has, has that changed at all? Has there any been been any updates with that case? Yeah. So um, in July of 2020, for people who aren't familiar with the case, the Supreme Court ruled that um, Muscogee Creek Nation still had a reservation, had always had a reservation that had actually never been um, abolished or gotten rid of by Congress. Um, although Oklahoma had acted that way for over a century, that wasn't the law. And so that decision led to subsequent decisions here in Oklahoma state courts that affirmed the reservations of five other tribes, including my tribe, Cherokee Nation. And so now much of the eastern half of the state of Oklahoma is acknowledged and considered a reservation. Um, Basically, what we've had since the decision, unfortunately, is a lot of backlash here from state officials in Oklahoma, really led by the governor, Governor Stitt. Um, So one of the things that the governor did to try and fight that decision was petition the Supreme Court dozens of times to actually overturn it. So he thought with Ruth Bader Ginsburg having passed away and Amy Coney Barrett joining the court, he could get a different outcome, which is kind of extraordinary. Um, The Supreme Court didn't go along with that. But what they did do is they granted cert to a case called Castro Huerta v. Oklahoma that asked this very narrow question. I mean, it, it actually has big applications. So it's a narrower question than overdoing the whole McGirt decision, but it, did, it is a case that will have big implications on criminal jurisdiction, not just in Oklahoma. Um, but basically, in the Castro case, the Oklahoma asked the Supreme Court 
to still have criminal jurisdiction over crimes committed on tribal land where the defendant is non-native and the victim is native. And normally those crimes can only be prosecuted either by the feds or by tribes under the Violence Against Women Act. Um, But Oklahoma won. In June, the Supreme Court issued its decision. So now um, states actually across the United States, not just here in Oklahoma, have concurrent jurisdiction. And again, it's a little complicated, but it's over crimes where um, the defendant is not native and the victim is native. That's where criminal jurisdiction has changed because of Castro. Yeah, that that one, I, it, it, it's still recent. How is that playing out? Are we, are we, are we going to start seeing, you know, state troopers on reservations patrolling? Yeah, I think that that's a really big question. You know, here in Oklahoma, our reservations, um, we have a lot of, you know, for people who are familiar with allotment and how like reservation land works, we already have a lot of fee land and the majority of folks living on our reservations are not tribal citizens. And so before, I mean, which is part of the frustration of everything that's happened on the Supreme Court is that we had cross deputization agreements with police. Um, We had kind of sorted that system out. Um, But yeah, I think it's a really big question um, for reservations where there has not been the presence of state law enforcement, what is that going to look like? Um, And I think we know from basically what Castro did, it's, you know, this is oversimplifying it somewhat, but made every state kind of like a PL-280 state where um, the state and the tribe and the feds have concurrent jurisdiction over certain crimes Um, And what we know from PL-280 states is that when there's a ton of overlapping jurisdiction, especially because Native victims often don't get the same attention and resources as non-Native victims, that everyone just passes the buck. And so it doesn't actually lead to more safety or it hasn't historically led to more safety um, for Native victims. So we'll see what the impact of Castro Huerta is. Um, But I think it is I think the other thing that is a reason to worry about the decision is the way that the Supreme Court justices worded it. And so they could have kind of just looked at, okay, like here is why, you know, states do have jurisdiction over these crimes, blah, blah, blah. But they went very big picture and the language is really sweeping. And so Kavanaugh, who's the Supreme Court justice who wrote that opinion, said things like, um, you know, Indian country is not separate from the state. Tribal land isn't separate from the state. It's part of the state. You know, like things like, you know, states have inherent jurisdiction on tribal land unless Congress has said that they don't, not the other way around, where states only have jurisdiction where it's been granted by Congress. And so those are some really, really big, it's a really basically big assertion of states' rights and saying that states' rights trumps tribal sovereignty and even kind of comes before what Congress has said. Um, And so that's what's very scary about the decision is, is this, you know, I think time will tell and I think really we'll know a year from now um, because of some decisions that the Supreme Court are going to hear next term. Is this just a weird decision that's a departure 
or is this a decision that is charting a new course and the Supreme Court is going to continue down that course and subsequent decisions, which could be really damning for tribal sovereignty? Yeah, it's interesting to see this, the state's rights issue get pushed in, in a lot of these cases. Um, and, and this won't be confusing at all. I'm sure it'll all work out just fine, right? It, <laughs> adding more people to the mix. Yeah, surely that won't make jurisdiction less <sighs> less complicated. Oh, man, that's crazy. Um, okay, so let's switch to season two then. Uh-huh. Where are we with the Indian Child Welfare Act? So there is a case, I think it's been consolidated under Holland v. Brackeen, but a lot of people have probably heard it called Brackeen v. Holland or just the Brackeen case. And um, it is a case brought by um, three white foster families who wanted to adopt Native children that they were fostering and um, the state of Texas. And so that group of people are suing the federal government saying that ICWA violated their constitutional rights and that it should go away entirely. So they're trying to strike ICWA down. Um, They've had mixed success in the lower courts and the appellate court. And so now it's been appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court agreed to hear the case um, last winter, and it'll be argued on November 9th in Washington, D.C. And then we will likely, um, you know, we never have a guarantee from the Supreme Court, but barring anything really unusual, um, we'll likely hear the decision in June of 2023. So in a little bit less than a year from now. Okay. So that one, we're kind of still waiting to see how that's going to shake out. Okay. Yeah. And that's where the Castro decision is scary because, um, they are making a much stronger state's rights argument in the ICWA challenge. So the state of Texas is coming in and saying ICWA violates the constitutional rights of the state of Texas. And, you know, the federal government can't tell, you know, child welfare proceedings are, they're controlled by states and the federal government can't come in and tell states what to do. Um And what's scary is that there's a lot of laws that Congress sets that really govern the relationship between states and the tribes. And really, when you think about our sovereign indigenous nations, you know, when we signed treaties, we weren't signing treaties with the state of Texas or the state of Oklahoma. You are signing treaties with the U.S. federal government. And so just like the state of Oklahoma can't go off and, you know, recognize um, you know, Palestine as a country or establish separate diplomatic ties with Russia or have anything to do with U.S. foreign policy. Um, The arena of federal Indian law is fundamentally a relationship between two sovereigns, and that's a nation-to-nation relationship, not a relationship between the states and the federal government. And so it's scary if the um, if the Supreme Court is interested in rewriting that, is interested in rewriting 200 years of case law and constitutional law, um, because we know, I mean, you know, just for us as Cherokees, you know, I mean, we were driven from our homeland by the state of Georgia. Allotment happened, um, you know, really at the hands of um, settlers in Oklahoma, then the territory who were advocating for it. And so we have not had a happy track record of dealing with the states, and I'm sure other people's tribes have similar stories. And so um, that's one of the things that's really scary about the Brackeen case. 
Yeah. Yeah, that it's going to have big implications. And you start rewriting 200 years of policy. There's what scares me is too is, is all of the policies and and things that we're not even thinking about yet that that somebody's going to find and there's going to be some kind of weird thing that comes up that we're we're really not even looking at because we're looking at these other things. Um, yeah, that's when it gets really really scary. All right, now let's switch to more recent. The Supreme Court, you know, really shocked a lot of people. Um, and this has been a cornerstone case, uh, you know, uh, a decision that nobody thought would ever get overturned. Yeah. So they overturned Roe v. Wade. And immediately, you know, I saw on social media posting things about how this is going to affect tribes. And one of the first things I saw posted, and I wanted to get, you know, you, you your opinion on this and kind of where this is going. But, you know, you started seeing people saying, oh, well, tribes are now going to become the abortion clinic home for the country. Can't is that even possible? And are could or do tribes even want to get into that? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, oh, and I just I want to back up and just to highlight yeah. one more thing about the Brackeen case because there's the states' rights argument, and then the plaintiffs, the foster families, are also claiming that ICWA discriminated against them. And so, you know, we often talk about um tribal affiliation and tribal citizenship under the law being a political classification, not a racial classification. So I can go and get my glasses at the IHS clinic or get my teeth cleaned um, because I'm a citizen of Cherokee Nation. Um, and that's a political relationship. And what the individual plaintiffs are saying is saying, no, 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 no. It's not about tribal citizenship. It's about race. And therefore, it's unconstitutional because we can't treat people differently based on race. And what's really scary about that is that if the Supreme Court upholds it, it could undermine, um, it's called Title 25, but it's basically like the book that all the laws <laughs> that dealing with, you know, federal Indian law go under. Um, it could undermine all of that. And just one last thing on that is that the big corporate law firm who brought this lawsuit that's supposedly about the welfare of Native children and about their concerns with ICWA has already filed the lawsuit to try and gut Indian gaming and make it so that um, tribes can't operate casinos where non-native casino developers can't. They've already filed that lawsuit making the exact same arguments that they're making in this equal lawsuit. So they're not even trying to hide their hand, that it's not really about children, that it's about chipping away at tribal sovereignty, um, which is sad because these kids are just pawns in a bigger fight over money and resources. Yeah. Um, and, and so what I want to say about abortion is, you know, I think I saw um, Stacey Weeds, who's a fellow citizen of Cherokee Nation and a law professor, make a really great tweet. And a few other Native leaders um, kind of tweeted out similar sentiments in response to the, you know, abortions on tribal land, right. which is that um, we don't have full sovereignty over our land. You know, just like what we're talking about with Castro and states being able to prosecute certain tri crimes that happen on tribal land. And so if folks are going to fight if folks want to benefit from tribal sovereignty, but don't want to fight for it or don't really know even what right. it is, I think there is a really big 
disconnect in that moment, right? And so, you know, um, there might be situations where some Native women living on tribal land um, may not fall under state jurisdiction and have an extra layer of protection, but it really depends. Um, But, you know, any non-Native person performing or obtaining an abortion on tribal land um, would be still subject to state jurisdiction. And so, and I think the other really big issue to point out is that because of the Hyde Amendment, Native women already um, who are using IHS to access healthcare don't have access to abortion care. And so that's a really um, big issue. And then the last thing that I'll say on that is that there's a group um, out of the Southwest called Indigenous Women Rising, and they're an abortion fund specifically for Native women. And so Native women who might need financial help um, because of limited access to abortion, often that's travel um, to actually access an abortion. Um, Indigenous Women's Rising is a place where people can donate if they want to want to do that. Yeah. Like we've been talking about, jurisdiction is is a really complicated issue, whether it's criminal, civil, or or health-related. We saw a lot of people saying things like, well, you know, there's tribes now that are able to open dispensaries and sell marijuana, or they're Mm -hmm. able to gaming, which those are against against states' rights or states' laws in in those areas, so why can't they open up abortion clinics? And I I don't think it's that simple – because two, it's then you get into again what you were saying is is is, it, is that service going to be rendered just for people affiliated with that tribe or is it open to the yeah. public? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think it depends on the state and how the law is even worded in the states because abortion bans are you know different legal statutes. Um, but I do think there is some area to explore in helping Native women access abortion on tribal lands. Um, because we would not be subject to state prosecution. Um, but there's still, you know, some risks involved in that. Right, right. And you you know, you already have states passing laws for not letting their, um, the people in their state travel to, to get uh-huh. a person. Um, that's going to be a whole other challenge of lawsuits, too, because can, can states really restrict interstate commerce at that? I don't know. Um, yeah, this is going to be a mess for a while. All right. So with with that decision, you know, it and like you said, we already know that the Supreme Court is taking up some other cases coming up soon. But with this shift, um, what are the thing? What are the other cases that we're seeing on the horizon that that we're starting to worry about that may, like you say, may they start, may start ticking away at, at sovereignty and these legal issues? Yeah. I mean, I would say that the Brackeen case is is really the big one. And, um, you know, a worst a worst case scenario for tribal sovereignty in Brackeen is that a year from now, ICWA is gone. ICWA has been declared unconstitutional. We no longer have the protections of the Indian Child Welfare Act. And the decision was worded in such a way that other challenges to other laws, whether it's the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, NAGPRA, um, you know, just, you know, if, if we're a racial group and we can't be treated differently, how can we have our own elections? How can we have our own land? What racial group gets to have its own police force and its own court right. system? I mean, it's just, you know, where does that line, what racial group gets to have their own bodies of, um, 
you know, land and reservations that they can self-govern. I mean, it just, where does that stop? And so I think a worst case scenario in Brackeen for tribal sovereignty is a decision that gets rid of ICWA entirely and sets up a domino effect so that those next cases that come challenging Indian gaming or challenging funding for IHS are set up to win based on the decision in Brackeen. And like I said, they've already filed, they've already filed the Indian gaming case. And so I think that, um, I, 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 I think that if folks are concerned about what the Supreme court is doing, people really need to have their eyes on Brackeen. And I think within I mean, I think everyone within the United States who's concerned about indigenous rights needs to pay attention to this case. And I think within Indian country and within our tribes, we really um, we really need to be preparing. You know, a lot of people thought that the Supreme Court um, would never overturn Roe, you know, and there were a lot of people who were saying, no, like, this is really possible. Like, why would they even grant cert in this case if that's what not what they wanted to do? And they were called alarmists. And now we're seeing the ends effect. So I think we really it's um, it's scary to think about what's possible. But I think to prepare our communities and also to just look at it realistically and look at what this court has already shown it's willing to do both in the arena of federal Indian law and Castro, but then some of the other decisions that really depart um, with precedent. Um, yeah, I think when we're, we see what this court is willing to do, I think that that, that kind of, that kind of decision is really within the realm of possibility. What's, and, and I don't, again, I don't follow it as close as you and others do, but for individual members of, of the court with, you know, in the past 10 years or so with other native issues that have come up, are we seeing a, a change in how the, some of these members are, are voting or did we, is it just that the, the majority changed? Yeah. I mean, you know, if you look back, I mean, going back a long time, um, tribes have not fared well at the Supreme Court. So the last time I looked at the data, which I think was 2018 or 2019, we had lost about two thirds of the cases that we had brought to the Supreme Court. Um, And I think you see, I mean, to look at a very big picture, you know, for a long time within the United States, Congress was the body um, that was chipping away at indigenous rights. Um, and, you know, it was like the executive branch and the War Department doing those things too. Um, you know, passed the Indian Removal Act, you know, came up with some of these federal policies. And what we've seen since through Native activism has really shifted to where we got a generation of policies from Congress that benefited Indigenous people because of the leadership of, um, you know, Indigenous folks in the 70s and since then. Um, Now what we've seen is that the, I guess, the part of our government that chips away at Indigenous rights has ironically become the Supreme Court. And so you know, we have decisions, you know, the reason, I mean, it's one of the reasons that um, that uh, jurisdiction is such a mess on tribal land is because of Oliphant. And so, and and that's not, you know, it's not a hundred percent. I mean, those are, that's a very big generalization. And so there have been really important um, Supreme Court decisions that have stood firm with indigenous rights, like the McGurk decision in 2020. Um 
But then there's also been decisions that have really undermined indigenous rights. And so it's really hard. I think it's, it's really hard. Um, what we had with McGirt and a few other decisions that happened within those years um, was a different Supreme Court than we have now. And so Ruth Bader Ginsburg was replaced by Amy Coney Barrett. And so we'll have to see, um, we'll have to see right now. And we'll also have to see um, what uh, Biden's new uh, nomination, Justice Jackson Brown, what her record will be like. Um, And so um, it's, you know, it's complicated. And it's also hard. Like, I think the other thing is that indigenous issues uh, when we talk about the Supreme Court, often we talk about, you know, liberals versus conservatives and how the Supreme Court means. And you can't really do that math with indigenous issues because we've seen liberal justices. Um, I think she shifted some towards the end of her tenure on the court. But Ruth Bader Ginsburg has done. She wrote City of Sherrill decision, which was awful for indigenous rights. And then we have Gorsuch, um, who wrote the McGirt decision, wrote the Castro dissent and um, is a pretty staunch, uh, I mean, I I hate to say that he's a supporter of indigenous rights. He just, if the law says that a nation has a right, he doesn't make up a new rule to avoid what the law says. That's that's the standard that Gorsuch uses is following the law. Um, And so, uh, yeah, so we'll see. I mean, I think that, um, yeah. I, I, we'll see. So it's it's hard to talk about, you know, a lot of times people talk about the Supreme Court being 5-4 or being 6-3. And I think when it comes to tribal sovereignty, the um, the makeup of the court is more complicated than that. Right. And, you know, I hear a lot of people calling for um, you know, the expansion of the, of the Supreme Court or things like that. And we don't know yet if that really would help. Um, yeah. 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 Because these I would say- always... Paul, yeah. Yeah, and I I think there's a reporter called Lisa Graves who's done a lot of really great reporting on how much money organizations like the Federalist Society put into creating the Supreme Court makeup that we have today. And so I think when you get into actually how how we got where we are, this idea that the Supreme Court isn't political, that it exists outside of politics, um, Rings hollow. <laughs> I'll just say that. Right. Uh, People's United, right? It, it changed yeah. how campaign funding is done. And I, yeah. I don't, yeah, I, I agree. I don't think people understand how much money is really being spent um, on a local and national level. And, and to a large extent, some of these things that are happening on a local level are even scarier. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it, uh, I, mean, I was just watching a video, <laughs> totally unrelated, but just watching a video where a small town. Um, is now defunding their library because 0.001% of their library books were LGBT related. Um, yeah. And so, you know, you have, and it was, again, they raised massive amounts of money and did this huge uh, media campaign in that town. There's a lot of money being poured into some of these issues. Um, and like you said, some of this is uh, really smokescreen for larger issues where, you know, if, if Indian gaming it, is chipped away, we're talking about other corporations that can now get into some of that. And then we're talking about millions and you know billions of dollars that are we flowing um, away from Indian country and into politics again. Um, yeah. The, it's scary to say that how much money can influence this. And, and 
um, I've seen, yeah, like you said, I've seen some, some people starting to do the research and going back and showing just how much of a push this was um, for, for, for conservatives and how much money they've been spending over a long period of time to build up to this point where they could overturn Roe. Um, mm-hmm. And then you start thinking about, so what is, what's their next target? Um, what other landmark decision could they go after? Um, and there are some ones out there for Indian country that could be targeted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so what, you know, from, from a legal perspective, being in the middle of this, are, are you, you know, we talked uh, a year or so ago, you were optimistic about the McGirt case. Where are you now? I mean, are you feeling not optimistic at all? Or, you know, what's the outlook for this in your opinion? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, I think that it's mixed. I think one of, I think it's unfortunate that, um, instead of having a political posture of wanting to work with the tribes and make the decision work and do, you know, kind of what's best for all Oklahoma and really work in those partnerships, the current administration of Oklahoma, Governor Stitt, has instead taken the public position um, that, you know, McGirt was a disaster, that it should be overturned. And as a result, a lot of the working relationships between the tribes and Oklahoma have broken down. And I would say at the top level, and, you know, for my reporting, I've talked to district attorneys, I've talked to tribal prosecutors, I've talked to sheriffs and law enforcement. And what I found is, while a lot of the rhetoric at the top is antagonistic when it comes to public safety in Eastern Oklahoma, um, there are on the local levels, absolutely places um, where it's difficult and where tribes um, I think are not experienced a lot of cooperation, but there are also a lot of places um, where there is a lot of cooperation and tribes here, the five tribes here in Eastern Oklahoma, you know, have gone from prosecuting, you know, dozens of cases in a calendar year to thousands and have really expanded the court system. And I think we're also doing some things, you know, a lot of what we're doing is just trying to catch up. But, um, you know, Choctaw Nation is trying to um, have a drug court that focuses more on rehabilitation than punishment. So tribes are also thinking, well, how can we go back now that we have more jurisdiction? How can we go back to our values? And so I think and I also think that there's a lot of opportunity, you know, here in Oklahoma, um, when Oklahoma became a state, Congress passed a series of laws um, where not only we lost land, but we lost, you know, control over our schools. We lost. um, And as a result, we lost language. We, you know, it broke up communities. It, it, It just it. We kind of it it was an initial wound where we had a slow bleed for a century. And to me, I feel like McGirt doesn't fix all of that. It doesn't reverse it. You know, it doesn't give land back to families who lost it through the corruption and predation um, that dominated the allotment era. But it does um, stop some of that bleeding and helps tribes you know, in this process of us rebuilding. And so I, I do still feel optimistic about what the legacy, like when we look back 20 years from now, 50 years from now, I think that we'll look back and we will remember the McGirt decision as one of the most important decisions for tribal sovereignty. And I think at the same time, it will be because tribes have had to spend a lot of time and resources defending it, which I think is unfortunate, but it's it's where we're at. (laughs) Yeah. 
And so one of the other things I've, I've seen a few people mention with um, the overturning of Roe, people are saying that maybe, you know, the Biden administration and Congress now need to pass some laws and, and codify and protect abortion. But with some of these uh, Indian Child Welfare Act, there is a code of laws. And now we're talking about cases that could overturn years of policy that are written. So when that happens, there is really no fix, easy fix for that. I mean, yeah, yeah, there's not, you can't just pass another law. It's, it's, these are, these are massive pieces of legislation that would have to be rewritten. Right. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's trying to predict the future, which is um, dangerous. <laughs> right. But I do think that you know a, a lot of a lot of reproductive advocates um, and reporters were saying, "Hey, like people need to think about what is going to happen when the Supreme Court overturns Roe." And pe- you know, and a lot of folks at the time said, "Oh no, 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 no that's not going to happen." And I do think that it's a worthy exercise to think, okay, if in this case, the Supreme Court overturns ICWA, what's next? What does that look like? You know, immediately, what can tribes still do to protect their children? You know, a lot of, um, it's interesting that Texas is bringing up the state's rights argument because a lot of states have their own state version of ICWA, or a lot of states have taken parts of ICWA and incorporated it into their own child welfare code. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do think that we need to think about, again, how just, you know, what the possible outcomes are um, and try to be prepared for that. Yeah, I agree. It, it's time to start playing those what if games um, and, and start really looking at these these possibilities. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, people have also floated the idea of a Castro fix with Congress. You know, I think I think when you read the Castro decision, the judicial logic is it, it it's a pretzel. I mean, it's just <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense. And so I think we um, we might need to think about what what is if if the Supreme Court is going to go this far um, and kind of departing from precedent and departing from the law where else can we go within the U.S. federal government um, where the law and where the constitutionality of tribal sovereignty is something that is still upheld? Um, yeah. Right. Oh, it, there's there's a lot still still to come, but thank you for spending at least a few minutes yes. to, to try to get a handle on all this. Uh, uh, I said in the beginning, you know, when all of this really started breaking out, I was like, there's, Oh, I really want to get somebody that can come on here because we we're getting these questions asked and, and yeah. I can't answer them. So thank you for coming on and answering some of these questions. Um, you know, we'll, we'll have to check back in in a few months. Um, like you said, maybe June of 2023 when we get yeah. a decision there and, and we'll know. Yeah. More. Awesome. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, any uh, new, is there a new season of the podcast coming or anything oh. coming out? Well, there will be update episodes, so okay. if folks want updates as the case is headed to the Supreme Court, uh, you can subscribe um, anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, just look for this plan and hit subscribe, and then you'll get the updates. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you.
hope you enjoyed that interview with Rebecca and understand the significance of this topic. It is so important that we get this message out, that we all know what is coming. And like she said, we need to start running these what if scenarios and start planning for in case some of these things do come to, to fruition. All right. As I promised, I have a trivia question for today. This podcast has an intro and an outro recorded by a powwow MC and champion dancer. And I don't know that I've ever mentioned his name on the podcast, except early on when he first started doing the introduction and thanked him for doing it. So here's today's trivia question. Whose voice is in the intro? He's a powwow MC and a champion dancer. That's all the hints I'm going to give you. So what's his name? Uh, if you want to enter to win, you think you know, head on over to powwownation.com. We've got a box there where you can put in your answers. Next week, I will draw randomly from all the correct answers, and you will win a powwows.com shirt. If you want to check out the shirts, head on over to powwows.com slash shop, and you can see what all we have over there. Again, thanks so much, everybody. Powwows.com is your place to experience and learn, connect with Native American culture, and we hope that we are your starting point or your community to really understand more about Native American culture. Whether you're tribally enrolled or just interested in the culture, I hope we are your resource for learning more. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Be sure to subscribe so you get all of our upcoming episodes. And we'll see you next week on the Powell Life Podcast. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Powwow Life Podcast from powwows.com. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get notified of our next episode. Find a powwow near you by visiting www.powwows.com forward slash calendar. Support powwows.com by visiting www.powwownation.com. Here's this week's trivia question. You can head over to powwowlife.com to fill out the form and submit your answer. All the right answers are entered into a drawing for a 10-sticker powwows.com sticker pack. Here's the question. This year, we are celebrating a big milestone. We have been live streaming for a number of years. So tell me, what year was the first year we streamed and what was the first powwow we streamed? If you've been listening or following our content, you should be able to find it. Good luck. Powwowlife.com to submit your answer. What was the first powwow and what year did we first live stream? Good luck and thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next week.